Um, it is normally uh, my pattern from the, from the pulpit to work through books of the Bible and First Corinthians is one of these books that so far has had a, an impact tremendously on me. Um, unless you live under a rock, you're aware of the conversation our country is having lately about our borders and the different opinions about how to recognize who is out and who is in in our country and the legitimacy of the following laws to be a part of that country. And really the underlying question uh, in many of these things is that uh, what member of of what country are you a part of? What's your identity here? And in the scriptures, in the church, really a lot of those same principles are true and even more specifically so. For example, in Acts chapter 2, it says, After Peter preached the gospel, that there were those who repented and believed and were saved and were baptized, and were added to the church. And so there was this understanding here that when someone is born again by the Spirit of God, they are immersed in water as a picture of their identity with the triune God, their identity with Christ, their identity with the Father, their identity with the Spirit, and also identity with the very church of God, that they are a part of the covenant community of God. And they're added and they're understood to be part of the family of God. There's an understanding of of, of membership there. One of the questions I want to ask you this morning, it might be a strange one looking at this passage here, but I believe it will tie in, is this. Do you believe that it is your responsibility to help build a healthy church? Do you believe that it is your responsibility to help build a healthy church? And to partially answer that question, Jesus commands you to make disciples in Matthew 28. Jude tells you to build each other up in the faith. Peter, in 1 Peter 4, calls you to use your gifts to serve others. Paul commands you to speak the truth of Christ in love so that your church will mature. That is your part. But I want to give you a little bit of the reason why from the storyline of Scripture. Here is why. Because God Almighty purchased a bride for His Son through the blood of His Son, Jesus the Messiah. And He loves that bride deeply. And His Son loves that bride with every infinite fiber of His infinite being. And He has commissioned His dear bride, the church, to display His beauty to the nations, including our own nation, as was just prayed. And one of the ways we do this is because He has loved us, we love one another with the very holiness, unity, and truth of Him. And at the core of loving one another this way is having a clear and a full picture of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Because this love that He has for His bride flows out of an understanding of the Gospel that doesn't just skip things or leave things out or pass over things. I'm going to give you an example of how we may unintentionally leave key things out of what the Bible teaches about the Gospel that may give new disciples a wrong understanding of God's love for the bride and remove the importance and purpose of the church from the map of their understanding of salvation. Uh, many of us uh, probably responded to a, a, a core uh, gospel message like this. My remote cooperates with me here. 
It says something to the effect of this. God is holy. We have all sinned, separating us from God. But God sent His Son to die on the cross and rise again so that we might be forgiven. Everyone who believes in Jesus can have eternal life. We are not justified by works. We're justified by faith alone. The Gospel, therefore, calls all people to just believe. An unconditionally loving God will take you as you are. And that's how probably many of us heard the Gospel and been saved by God's grace. And God has used that in many people's lives. But if there are gaps that need to be filled in, it is this, that we need to understand from the outset that Jesus just doesn't save us from sin. He saves us to new life. He saves us where we're separated from sin, but we're separated to God. We're saved to new life, and we're not simply unconnected, random children of God who are now in His family. But He saves us as citizens of His eternal kingdom and we're brought into life with Him and friends and with His body, the church. To live together in His holy mission by taking up our crosses and following Him together. And so maybe to fill in some of these gaps, we could add to that uh, gospel presentation this. God is holy and He's created us like Him. In His image, in many ways. And we all have sin separating us from God because of our rebellion. But God sent His Son to die on the cross and rise again as our Savior so that we might be forgiven and begin to follow the Son as our King. And anyone who repents and believes can have eternal life. It's a life which begins today and stretches into eternity. We're not justified by works. We're justified by faith alone, but the faith which works is never alone. And so the gospel, therefore, calls all people to repent and believe. This one true loving God... Jerry, can you just advance the next slide? Got it? All right, thank you. This gospel, therefore, calls all people to repent and believe. This one true loving God will take you contrary to what you deserve and then enable you by the power of the Holy Spirit to become holy and obedient like His Son by reconciling you to Himself. But friends, He also reconciles you to His family, the church, and enables you as His people to represent together His own holy character and triune glory. There's lots of things, lots of terms, lots of words there we need to define. But the point of it is this, that God doesn't just save, God saves us individually, but He doesn't just save us as individuals. He brings us into a local church, into a covenant family of God. And He saves us to make us alive in Him and walk in Him. He doesn't only save us from sin and the penalty of hell. He does that. But He also saves us to bring us into new life together with His family, with His church. And so, if this isn't part of the initial proclamation of the Gospel... um, And it needs to be followed up with these truths here of what God is doing with His bride because this is the storyline all through the Scripture. Because if we leave out the fact that God is building a church and when we're saved, we're part of His church. If we leave that out, then 1 Corinthians 5 won't make a whole lot of sense to us. 1 Corinthians 5 will seem foreign and strange and not seem to fit partial truths here. Of God's unconditional love. Friends, any liberal 
uh, any doctrine of the liberal church will tell you that God loves, and He does. But a biblical church will tell you why He loves, and the purposes of His love, and what He's doing with that love, and what His disciplining love looks like, and what our response to His kindness and repentance looks like when it's genuine versus what Paul says, a worldly sorrow and regret. So, brothers and sisters, let's talk about God's grace. Let's talk about His love. Let's talk about faith. But, friends, let's complete the picture as well. Let's also talk about God's holiness. It's what He saves us for, Ephesians 1 says. Let's talk about Christ as the King. It's who He saves us to. Let's talk about the Holy Spirit's gift of repentance. It's to be a pattern of our new lives. And let's talk about the new covenant reality of the church. It's what He brought us in to, to show His love, His grace, His holiness and faithfulness. Why? Why the church? Because the church is to be distinct. The church is to be distinct. The Son Himself said so. He says, you're the salt of the earth, but the salt loses its saltiness. Then how is it going to be salty? It's no longer good for anything. It's just good to be trampled on. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. He said, a a city built on a hill can't be hidden. and People don't have a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a a lampstand. And then it gives light to everyone in the house. Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. There's a purpose there when Jesus saves us. And from Genesis 3 and on, through the unfolding story of the Scripture, because God is love, He can't be idle when sin goes on. His love must protect what He cherishes. And so when He deals with sin, it is out of actually a loving nature. He is sincere in His love and His creation. And so He cannot be indifferent to what plagued it. And so Adam and Eve had to be removed from the Garden of Eden. Israel had to be dealt with for their sin and allowing the pagan uh, idolatry into their, into their worship. And God is sincere and He's going to remove the cancer of what is infecting what He treasures. And so it is with the church. And this is the perspective we need to have here. Uh, A man named Michael Reeves wrote a book, Delighting in the Trinity, and he talks about um, God's wrath, His anger, and how it's connected to His love. And he said this, some see God's wrath making him look like an overgrown, foot-stamping toddler, a fight-picking bully, or a merciless sultan. Think of the outbursts of the gods of ancient Greece and Rome. But with a God who is eternally loved and always has been as a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, always existing in loving fellowship for all eternity, His anger must rise from that love. So, His anger is holy, set apart from our temper tantrums. It is how He and His love reacts to evil. The Father loves His Son and so hates sin, which ultimately is rejection of the Son. He loves His children and so hates their being oppressed. He loves His world and so hates all evil in it. Thus, in His love, He roots out sin in His people, even disciplining them that they might be freed from their captivity to it. In His love, He is patient with us. And in His love, He promises finally to destroy all evil as light destroys darkness. He writes this, It is the proof of the sincerity of His love that He truly cares. His love is not mild-mannered and limp. It is livid, potent, and committed. 
And therein lies our hope. Through His wrath, the living God shows that He is truly loving. And through His wrath, He will destroy all devilry, that we may enjoy Him in a purified world, the home of righteousness. You can illustrate it like this. Imagine if you woke up one night to hear a noise in your house, and everybody was in bed, and you didn't know where the noise was coming from, and it was an intruder breaking in. What would you do to that intruder to protect those behind you? You would do what needed to be done to remove the evil from your house to protect what you love. And so it is with God's love and His disciplining love. God is not a mamby-pamby, weak kind of passive lover. God is an active lover and His love is a pursuing love and that's what these verses will show us. And the first thing I want us to see here as we look in verses 1-5 through is this. As we read the text, it's reported commonly that there is fornication among you. That word fornication can mean any kind of sexual immorality. It's very broad. And such fornication as is not so much named among the Gentiles, the unbelievers. That one should have his father's wife. Probably referring to a woman that his father had remarried. And this son of his father had taken this woman to be his own. And Paul says, you're puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I truthfully, verily, as absent in body but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus this part of the letter is a, is a shift from the first section we covered, 1 Corinthians 1-4, through 4, that laid the foundation of the supremacy of the gospel that shapes leadership and ministry of the church, the center of the church, a crucified and arisen Messiah that addresses the factions, the divisiveness in the church, Jesus Christ Himself. Now Paul will shift here and address specific problems the rest of the letter, first dealing with the issues of sexuality and the gospel in chapters 5-7. through 7. And so as such, chapter 5 ties back to the end of chapter 4, where Paul has already accused the Corinthians of being puffed up, proud, boastful. And in this chapter, chapter 5, he's going to pronounce a judgment in verses 1 through 5 that I just read. Then he's going to explain the reasoning for it in verses 6 through 8. And then he's going to correct the misunderstanding in verses 9 through 13. He's going to tie in again Christ's good news of the gospel for sin and new life, to address the problem and remind them of who they are in Christ and command them to live that out in sincerity and truth. And as you see in the first verses there, it wasn't that there was a man in the neighborhood that people were talking about that was living like this. It was that there was a man who professed with his lips that he was a follower of Jesus Christ and he was living this way. He was professing that Jesus was his Savior and Lord and had saved him from sin and was his Master and King. And Jesus will not tolerate the way he's living because Jesus loves his bride and he will not have his bride overcome with cancer. This man had taken his father's wife, probably not the man's mother, another woman his father married, and he had taken her for himself and he was committing adultery with her. In other words, he was acting with her in a way that is reserved for a husband and a wife in marriage. 
And the issue was that even unbelievers in a wicked city like Corinth, and in the introduction of this book we saw some of the things that were tolerated in Corinth, knew this was wrong. But the church wasn't just tolerating it, the church was actually boasting about it. They saw this as a mark of their identity, that we can put up with this. Because as Paul had rebuked them earlier in the letter, in chapter 4, they think they have arrived spiritually. We're it. That God had given them free reign to do whatever they wanted because they were on their way to heaven and they were proud and arrogant by not dealing with that sin. And they were not concerned about God's glory and His reputation and their purpose for showing how beautiful He is to the world. They wanted to do what they wanted to do under the guise that everything was okay. Friends, any time we do not deal with sin in our own lives, we are acting in pride. It's no different. We're saying to God that He is wrong, that we are right, that we know how to do life better than Him. And we, when we put off repenting the things that God's Word shows us are wrong in our lives, that robs Jesus of His living reign in our lives. That builds our shambled kingdom rather than His eternal kingdom. And we are in a very dangerous place. And because He loves us, God's pursuing love exposes sin. He will not let that go. He will not let that continue. There may be individuals and families that might sweep sin under the rug of deception that they don't want to embarrass themselves or or their families and they fear what may think of them when the reality is God rejoices when sinners come to repentance. Three times in Luke 15, God rejoices when sinners come to repentance. He joys in that. And right dealing with sin is always better with hiding cancer. What happens when you hide cancer? What happens if you take some coals and, as the scripture says, takes coals and, and, and takes hot burning coals and holds them to yourself and covers them? Eventually, that cancer and those coals of fire they burn a hole and they spread, and the end result is so much worse than if we would have put aside our pride and dealt with sin properly than hiding it. And your sin affects your soul. Your sin affects your family. Your sin affects your church. History is strewn with illustrations of generations affected by patterns of people who have not properly addressed sins as a wrong culture gets passed down and people turn their heads away and bury them in the sand. And it is true of a church together as well. And that's Paul's point. At the point of these verses is to call a church who will be healthy to confront sin. That is blatant. And if there is not a path of genuine biblical repentance, not simply a worldly sorry or sorry I got caught or sorry about these consequences here, but a real repentance, then that individual is to be presented before the church publicly if they do not repent. So that the church says on the basis of what his heart reveals to us, we only have physical eyes, this is all we can see, but on the basis of what his heart is showing us, we must make a judgment that we cannot put an affirmation of thumbs up approval on this man's life, on his soul. He cannot claim to represent Jesus Christ in his church with us and say he has new life. And that's what was needing to happen here in verses 1 through 5. The church discipline says that an unrepentant heart screams a whole lot louder than lips. Screams a whole lot louder of one lost than one who's been rescued. And we must, on the basis of the Word of God, remove him from assembling as a representative of the body of Christ and deliver, as Paul says, to Satan. 
to say, okay, you want to live this way. Then your will be done. With a loving hope that in the pursuing, disciplining love of God, if this man is truly a believer, God will hunt him down. That's why Paul says in verse 5, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That his flesh, his pull, his, his, his drive toward this sin would be extinguished and he returns to the Lord Jesus. Because he can't have it both ways. And so really this is remedial, this is not punishment, this is looking forward to the man being restored. And friends, let me remind you again, this is out of God's love. God cherishes His church. He holds it dearly and He will not sit idly by and let cancer fester. And He calls His church to be like Him in this way. And Jesus has delegated His bride this authority in Matthew 18. In Jesus' words, to loose and to bind with the keys of the kingdom. Notice why in verses 6-8. through Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Leaven is, is yeast. He's saying, your bragging isn't good. Your tolerance and smugness of this unrepentant sin is going to spread. It's going to infect the whole church like a little yeast in dough will. It'll make the whole dough change. Let me give you uh, an example of this here. <clears throat> and we'll see our second point here. That God's pursuing love confronts sin. Get advanced to the next slide here. Uh, for 15 months, a journalist, Sebastian Junger, followed a single platoon of U.S. soldiers stationed in a very dangerous part of Afghanistan. And uh, he found that living and working, as you might expect, in the middle of a war zone, made him realize how much the soldiers had to rely on each other, no matter what their rank was. And what you do or don't do as a soldier affects everyone else in your platoon. And Junger uh, writes this, he said, Margins were so small and errors potentially so catastrophic that every soldier had some kind of uh, default uh, authority to reprimand others, no matter what their rank was. Uh, in some cases, even officers. And because combat can hinge on small details, there was nothing in a soldier's daily routine that fell outside the group's protocol. Whether you tied your shoes or cleaned your weapon or drank enough water or secured your night gear, these were all matters of the group at large. And so they were open to be scrutinized. He said, one time I watched a private accost another private whose bootlaces were trailing on the ground. Not that he cared what it looked like, but if something happened out there, and out there everything happened very quickly, spiraled out of control very quickly, the guy with the loose laces couldn't be counted on to keep his feet at a crucial moment. It was the other man's life he was risking, not just his own. There is no such thing as personal safety out there. What happened to you happened to everyone. And that's the illustration Paul's trying to make here. 
and 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. That all of us, not just the elders or the deacons, all of us are responsible to confront blatant sin. We're in a battle that is way more costly terms. We're to love what God loves to not just turn our heads to sin. And so if we ourselves personally are practicing in our spiritual disciplines broken repentance in our lives, an openness before God, an open heart, and admitting and dealing with sin, actions that result out of repentance, that we're going to be a body together, a family that practices loving mornings about the hardness of heart, like Hebrews 3 says, the deceitfulness of sin. And we're also going to be provoking each other to love and good works. When was the last time you did that? When was the last time you provoked somebody else to love and good works? Provoked here is used in Scripture in a good way. And when sin needs to be confronted, we don't hope someone else will do it, but we speak the truth of Christ to one another in love because the issues are at stake here. Here's what Paul says, here's why. Because Jesus Christ is our pure Passover lamb for us. Jesus did not free us to sin, but Jesus freed us from the power of sin. Jesus did not suffer the death of the cross, become a sin offering to God for us, die innocent in our place for our sins, so that His church would just continue in sin or ignore it. No, we're to become what we are. That's what this book of 1 Corinthians is all about. Become what we are. In other words, we're to act in faith and obedience to what He's called us to. It's because of Jesus Christ. It's because of the Gospel that Paul's getting back to. And we celebrate that new life, not scoff at it. We eat the new bread that Jesus has given us of purity without leaven, uh, uh, without yeast, uh, of sincerity and truth, not the stale, moldy bread of wickedness and evil, Paul's saying. So friends, keep close watch on your own souls. It is for your good. It is for your peace. It is for your joy. Because God's pursuit of a close relationship with us and His holiness isn't like an old nasty mildewy basement that you've got to go into every once in a while with cold concrete walls. God's pursuit of His relationship with us and holiness is like the summer warmth in strawberry fields with the cool breezes washing over you with a scent of fresh strawberries. That's what life with Him is. It's something to delight in, to enjoy. It's beautiful. And don't forget it and always get back to it through Christ. And don't forget your brothers and sisters as well. They need you too. And there's a correction to their thinking that's going to build a healthy church in verses 9-13, through 13, he says. He talks about an earlier letter that he'd written to them, not to company with fornicators. And he makes the point in verse 10 that he's not talking about having associations with the world who may be in these particular sins. He's saying that's to be expected. They're dead in their sins. What he's saying is this cannot be tolerated in Jesus' church. And he says in verse 11, Now I've written to you not to keep company or fellowship if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator. So listen, he, he expands this because sexual sin isn't the only sin out there, is it? We all will struggle with different things. And Paul says a man has got a lifestyle of being a covetous person, an idolater, worshiping things that God has given us more than God Himself, putting things out of priority. For then must you needs go out of the world, he says in verse, in verse 10. But in the church, he says, 
or a drunkard or an extortioner who is such in one, no, not to eat, not to mix with, not to fellowship with. Paul says, draw the line. Don't put up with sin, a lifestyle of sin. Because Paul says, what have I to do to judge them also that are out the outside? It's not my job to judge the world. It is my job. It is my job to be concerned about my church family. Not in a hypocritical, gotcha kind of way, but because we love each other and we are all together pressing into the full measure of the stature of Jesus Christ. Because the stakes out there are high. Because there are carcasses strewn all across the wilderness with believers who haven't been warned. But people who have not been provoked to love and good works. And Paul is saying here that God's pursuing love isolates sin. He sets it aside. Look what he says in verse 13. But then that are outside, God judges. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. In other words, life characterized by these behaviors that are removed from the church and those people removed are not to be associated with. They're not to be fellowshiped with. Not to be high-fived. The world can be expected to live this way, Paul says, and win them to Christ. They don't claim Christ. They haven't been delivered from the power of evil. But someone who is a part of our body and has a lifestyle of these things cannot be allowed to continue in blatant misrepresentation of Jesus Christ, Paul says. Paul says you relate to the lost, the unbelievers, by going to them, showing how God in His love rescues them from the power of evil and judgment of God in their sin. And God put us in this world to be ambassadors of light to the world. But when the sin of the world comes into the body and there is no repentance, the church's jurisdiction is restricted to its membership. It's restricted to those who are inside. God will take care of unbelievers' sins. Certainly. Indeed, their, their fate will be bad enough that Christians should not add to their agony, but instead to lead them to Jesus Christ. So Paul here says, no, you are to judge those who are among you. Those that are notoriously and persistently wicked, we are not to fellowship with them if they name the name of Christ. We are to remove their fellowship from what God cherishes with the goal of repentance and eventual restoration with open arms. They choose to come back to Christ. And again, this is your responsibility personally as individuals. Friends and fellow church members should continue to reach out and urge repentance for someone who has to be church disciplined from our church roles. Just as you would in evangelizing non-Christians. But close social fellowship, Paul says, can't continue because the dynamics have shifted. You don't have that unity that you that they once claimed. And there will be relationships that will be strained. But the whole point in this is to cause the persons involved by the severity of the church's pronouncement here upon them who says you may not be a part of our membership anymore. You may not be a part of our church until you return to Jesus Christ. The whole point of that is so that they are stimulated to change their behavior. That is, to bring them back to Jesus and His church by showing them that their choice to live apart from Christ and His church is empty. On October 25th, 2010, there was a massive earthquake that set off a tsunami that struck some Indonesian islands and 
leveled whole villages, left hundreds dead or missing, and according to the survivors, though, these deaths could have been avoided, or at least minimized. Because there was a tsunami warning system. There were two buoys off the coast of one of the islands of Indonesia that weren't working properly. And as a result, they didn't alert the islanders to this coming danger. You see, since 2004, experts have improved the tsunami detection network. They call them the dark buoys. And they measure the wave height. And if a buoy measures an unusual wave, it then transmits by wireless that information to the shore. And that system then provides a warning signal for the islanders to get to higher ground. But according to a report, the buoys became detached and they had drifted away and sensors had failed and as many as 30% weren't even working. And so they didn't waken people to the reality of future tragedy. And did you see the connection to the text here? It was there in place. It wasn't working. It wasn't doing its job. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we not only have the privilege of sharing Christ's love, we also have the responsibility, because of Christ's love, to confront sin and warn people of judgment. If, like these buoys, we become detached or we drift away, or our love becomes cold or apathetic, we may leave others unprepared for the consequences of the tsunami of sin or life apart from Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, this whole chapter is true because we have freedom in Christ. He has released us from the shackles of sin. We are no longer slaves. We are no longer enemies. We are no longer orphans. We have abundant life with God and we have been recreated after the true image of His Son. And we can never be satisfied with the old life. We've been made new by the death of sin in Christ and living after sincerity now in truth and resurrection power. And friends, this is why we this morning are celebrating the Lord's death and His resurrection on our behalf for the Lord's Supper. Let's pray.